0: Guardian Unlimited.
1: The heckle! Small world. The
2: heckle! the The heckle.
3: Hello, Hello, I'm Brian Logan
2: and I'm Lucy Porter
3: and welcome to the heckle coming to you today from the Guardian's teeming techno hub in Edinburgh
2: And here with us to talk through week two of the festival are the comedians Robin Ince and Richard Herring. Hello
3: Robin. Hello Hello Richard. Hello, how are you doing? Good. And we're also joined by the Guardian's Maxi
4: Shalvinska. Bearing up, Maxi? Indeed, thank you Or am I meant
2: to say hello? No, that's good. So on today's bumper half-hour heckle, we'll look at what happens when comedians turn their hands to theatre.
3: We'll hear the story of the fringe venue that never was. We'll come up with our own if.comedy shortlist ahead
2: of the official announcement next week.
3: And I'll play golf. Woohoo!
2: But first, late-night acts. Life in Edinburgh is a 24-hour experience, and some of the most popular shows happen well after midnight. There's Late and Live, After Hours, Spank, and Maxwell's Full Mooners, to name but four.
5: Will you please welcome to the stage the mooniest mooner ever to have mooned the moon, Andrew Maxwell. Starts at midnight, runs
6: to very late, it's very boozy. Instead of like a normal comedy gig where people applaud when they really like something, when some shit is going off, people howl.
1: If You've never been to full mooners before. As he welcome to the stage. J.J. Whitehead!
6: Late at night, you get that drunken horde, you can get one that's just brilliant, and they get into your rhythm, and they come with you, and the gig goes to a really cool place. It's
1: good, it's fucking festival! Friday night festival time, 10 after 2, here you go. You're up late, staring at some guy you've never seen before yelling at you! You
6: Really spontaneous things can happen in the late shows that aren't gonna happen in the structured, in our theatrical shows. So it's great, so you get some good moments
1: gives a shit about watching athletes that are perfectly capable of doing the events they've been training their whole lives for. I don't care, man. Ooh, look at me. I'm fit as fuck, and I throw a javelin for miles. I don't give a shit.
6: Because the fact is, in our shows, the same things happen pretty much every night. We might be a little bit flexible and improvise a bit, and so there's some spontaneous moments. But late at night, they there's proper moments that everybody will talk about. Like, Do you man. remember that time when such and such pulled his pants down, or whatever?
1: Tripping over each other, slipping and puke, that's what we want, isn't We've it? We got
6: guys who who are almost stylized, who are one-liners, guys that tell sort of body tails. guys who are part character. You know, everybody can fucking storm, but you just got to bring it.
1: Feet, Stop your fucking feet! Stop your fucking feet!
6: I think I just sized up the room, looked at the stage, then went backstage. And the cool thing is, of course, being on a bill with your buddy. I'm good friends with Maxwell, so we just hung out backstage and loosen up. And by the time you've loo- if you've been able to loosen up before you go on stage, then you can feel comfortable and at home right away. People.
1: Still hear me say Edinburgh for the month? And they go, oh, rain's a lot up there. Your country's fucking underwater right now. You need to live in the
6: moment. You need to be able to release yourself from any shackles of ego or worries of pomposity and just live completely and purely in the moment. You're the joke. You're the joke. You get up on stage, you want to make people laugh. You're the fucking joke, you know?
3: So, Richard, Robin, have you got experience of these late-night burpits?
7: Um, late in live I've done. I haven't done Full Mooners. In fact, late in live, when I was in the Oxford Review in 1988, oh. we were booked. And it, it nearly uh, destroyed my entire... In fact, it's like it hung over my entire career, in fact, actually, that gig. I didn't really understand what late and live was, I don't think.
2: What yeah. were you doing, like, sketches?
7: We tried to do sketches, yeah, without microphones. I mean, we were insane. Um, and we got really booed off, but then we had been booked twice and they were shouting us for being posh and stuff. And then we'd been booked twice and we had to come do the second because they were paying us £10 each. And we <laughs> money. So, so we came to the second one and actually did a kind of, well, I did an awful thing with Ben Moore. <laughs> which we were slightly angry, I did, I did a, an act called Herring and Spaz with Ben Moore. <laughs> in which Ben was my mentally handicapped uh, younger brother. And a mere
5: 14 years <laughs> later, you was script-editing Little Britain. But how did it happen?
3: But Leighton Live used to be unique, didn't it? And it used to have this reputation yeah. as uniquely savage, but now it's been diluted a bit, because these places are all
5: over the place. See, I, I'm not sure, because when I first went there, before I was doing comedy, when I was a teenager, and I first went to Leighton Live, it was just an interesting evening. It then started to get this bear pit reputation, and I think now comics feel that they're being, you know, blooded with the tail of a fox by doing it. And mm. it, because it's got this reputation as well, I think it means that people... People who go there, they go, yeah, well, we as an audience must therefore behave appallingly. And you think, yes, it's marvellous that they do this in Edinburgh because, of course, there aren't clubs available the rest of the year that do this uh, for more money. And, I mean, I I think late in life can have great moments. And I've I've seen Daniel Kitson do marvellous things there and and Ross Noble, and you will see interesting surprises. But I think maybe it's got too much of a reputation now. And so people go and they think, oh, yes, it'll be a horror. And sometimes it's just quite bland as well. Mm I do Spank, which can be all right. Spank was actually great. I, I've normally quite enjoyed doing that. And, and I think there are... It depends on what kind of drunks you're getting. Because you can get the drunks who are what you would call fringe drunks, who actually, they like. It's In much the same way as last year, I did a late-night show called Dirty Book Club, which was a version of the show that I do called Book Club, but with ruder books and weirder things. And we got what I would call a kind of drunken librarian and goth crowd, <laughs> uh, which was great fun to play to. And Spank, when it was first going, uh, that's actually where the book club even came. Came out of was you could go there and just experiment, and do anything you want. You didn't have to go up there and do stand up. I think a lot of these late night shows now are just late night stand up shows.
7: I think the book club's an experimental kind of place. Political animals are sort of late night one where I did political animal early on, and they were just that. It's really rare to have a late night audience that kind of you'd say something clever and they're kind of applauding. They were almost <laughs> a bit too... Yeah, a bit too sort of intellectual. Actually, they missed the point of sometimes when you were taking the piss and they were applauding some point you were making. <laughs> and you were actually just about to go on to subvert it. But, um yeah, a very Guardian reading audience.
4: Uh, they're probably <laughs>
7: listening now. Hello. <laughs> you know, do get lots
3: of late-night burlesque and cabaret these days. Perhaps the, the way to really experiment now is for comedians to put on a feather bore and start... Just the, the full string of
0: pearls, which I, I saw
5: is quite... Actually, the, the burlesque thing is amazing. It's such a boom now, isn't it? But you, you have to choose your burlesque well because there are some fantastic, you know, really... People who know the whole history of burlesque and they're, and they're also great performers. And then sometimes you just go and see some embarrassed students in their pants yes. and think, that this doesn't look very much like burlesque to me.
2: Yes.
7: Still sounds all right to me.
2: <laughs> Naked students looking embarrassed in their pants. is heckling you in the wee small hours is one side of the Edinburgh experience. On the other end of the scale, some comedians are treading the boards in Edinburgh's festival theatres. It's an increasing trend with comedians like Phil Nickel directing Breaker Morant and Killer Joe, and Rich Hall writing and starring in Best Western.
3: Stuart Lee has devised Johnson and Boswell, which brings back to life the famous Dr Johnson, played by Simon Munnery, while Miles Jupp plays his Edinburgh-born biographer and world champion Syphilitic Boswell. And we went along to the play and asked the audience what they thought, comedy or theatre?
8: Ooh, I say it was comedy. That was a comedy.
2: Very funny theatre.
3: I don't see a distinction between
1: the two. Did it work? For me it did. I thought it was quite brilliant. I thought it was thought-provoking and it was hilarious and uh, very entertaining.
2: Hit? Hit for me too.
9: Oh, kind of hit miss really. I mean, I'd I love the performances, but it was a pile of old crap, really. We
2: watched it at 10.30, we laughed yeah, a lot. it's Sunday night, it's yeah.
9: work tomorrow, so it was a great atmosphere to send you off into the week, really. The
2: most shambolic thing I've ever seen in the travels. <laughs> it was a bit highbrow for me. It's more interesting to have a dramatic concept. I think a lot of comedians are actually trying to shoehorn a kind of plot into a standard kind of comedy routine, which can seem really forced. I love the uh, depiction of the storm, with the buckets of rubbish being uh, thrown at
9: them. I'd rather see comedians do this for an hour than stand up and be boring middle-aged men for an hour. So,
3: comedians being middle-aged men for an hour. Richard, you saw Barnes <laughs> & Johnson, what did you
7: think? It's, it's really good, it's re- and I think it's what the Fringe should be about. It's kind of, you know, it's an experimental, different piece. For me, it's nice to see a theatre thing that is genuinely really funny, and I think theatre people get a bit sniffy about something being funny and think, if it's funny, it can't mean anything at the same time. But actually, it makes you think about a lot of... You know, it's about the notion of celebrity and about the notion of your heroes and about... The English Scottish divide, and you know, there's a lot of themes in it that are very interesting, and the development of characters, and just because it's not done with a po face and people crying and having been raped. Uh, Ma- Max, are you going to
3: leap to the defence of theatre people here? Do you only want to see shows where you cry and see people being raped?
4: No, no, absolutely not. I think that there's a lot of fantastically funny theatre on on at the Fringe every year. I think that the problem for me is when comics are cast in plays because producers want to flog tickets rather than because they can actually act. I mean, there's a difference between having comic timing when you're delivering your own material and being able to work with somebody else's script. Not everyone can pull that off. Not everyone think, can, yeah. but I think
7: in, certainly in this, uh, Miles Jupp and Simon Murray are incredibly well cast in it. And yeah, I agree with you, if the, if the people can't act, but then there's a lot of plays with actors who can't act. And them. Yeah. Someone like Phil Nicholl has proven himself to be just a phenomenally talented actor as well mm-hmm. as a great comedian. And I think if it's a funny play, a comedian will is more likely to get the comedy across, whereas it's actually very difficult, I think, to find actors who will do comedy in the correct way. But the odd couple, I think, when they had... Uh, Bill Bailey and Alan Davis. I think Alan Davis was, like, really badly miscast in that because he was a big name, you know, and he refused to cut his hair and stuff (laughs) and
5: so he looked quite shoddy where he was meant to be the kind of neat one I once did a comedy play I'll explain it more actually when I say a comedy play I did a comedy musical with Ted Rogers and Sue Pollard (laughs) Uh, it was not on the fringe and I found interesting in in the way that comics approached because they they had some straight actors in it and they had some comedians in it that the comics were best in the first few rehearsals because they got stuff immediately and there was an energy there and a lot of the actors seemed very kind of you know dead there was nothing there but then as it went on the actors got it right and the comics got bored and so started mucking around changing lines and I think sometimes that's one of the hardest things as a comedian to get rid of is as a stand-up you're used to being able to change things every night you're your own director producer etc whereas when you're doing a play go oh I've got to say this again and that kind of easy boredom comes in so I watched the progression of over two weeks. The actors become absolutely excellent and yeah. Freddie Parrot face Davis and myself uh, become increasingly foolish.
7: I put on four plays in the 1990s and they all cost me £10,000 to do and there's nothing you can do with them afterwards. I mean, I think the is now is much better because people take comedians a lot more seriously, but I think the theatre people just went, oh, it's a comedian writing plays. And the comedy people went, oh, it's a comedian writing plays. <laughs> so you're kind of in this middle ground. And I think I learnt a lot by you know, pushing myself into an area that um, you know, I hadn't done before and it's good to see people doing it you know, and I think especially as you get older it's nice to try something a bit different which yeah. is a bit ritual and stew and, well it's nice like, that the
2: Edinburgh Festival is being used for experimentation again because there was yeah. a while where people accused it of just becoming a, a safe place for stand-ups to yeah. go and look, if it
3: was really a place for experimentation comedians would be doing dance and classical music shows as well yeah. maybe, maybe <laughs> I'd just like to mention that
5: tap and opera both appear in the book club <laughs> <laughs> not by me though I'd love to be able to tap dance but, you know, <laughs>
7: people are complaining that there's, there's too much comedy at the fringe and then complaining when comedians start doing plays it's like you're not allowed to so do too many comedians. Yes, yeah. yeah. yes. I think people are very keen to pigeonhole you. You know, whereas a lot of comedians are very clever and very capable of writing a lot more than just a stand-up routine. You know, so I think. It's not like because you've been a comedian you're never allowed to write a play.
4: The proof is in the work in the end.
7: It is, but I really think there's a genuine thing where, where a theatre audience... There, there was a woman saying, I've never seen something so shambolic at the Traverse. <laughs> 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 there is a snootiness there, and I think theatre people are very suspicious of something that makes them laugh. The fact is if you go to a regular funny play, you might laugh. Four or five times mm. in two hours. So if you're laughing four times a minute, which I think you you do in in Boswell and Johnson, yes. you know, it makes it better to get your serious point across through comedy. And also, you know, in these plays, they're very subtly making a point rather than necessarily kind of clubbing people over the head with something. And if people are laughing and learning at the same time, it's a much more effective way of getting
3: something across if people are having a good time. Still to come in today's massive heckle.
2: If dot comedy speculation.
3: Homeless comedians
2: and golf. So Robin, how's your show going?
5: I always start off slightly psychotic so I'm happy on Wednesday then on Thursday I do my show and it's, it's when you have to get it into an hour it, it doesn't matter how many times you attempt to do it in an hour in a preview it's very different when you're actually just walking straight into that room doing the hour and then coming out and so I then spend a week going this is not what it was meant to be it was meant to be an amazing philosophical examination of consciousness and evolution and there's a man just shouting about the <laughs> and astronomers who had noses made of gold and uh, I've never managed to get very good two things that have annoyed me I spent three years trying to Write a good routine about Easter Island and about Eratosthenes, who discovered the circumference of the Earth through shadows. And uh, I've never worked it out.
3: Sounds like comedy gold.
5: Well, that Easter Island and Eritrea. Honestly, it really is. When you see Carl Sagan talking about it, it's magical. And that's the one thing I'd like. If I can gain anything out of this show, if twelve people who came to the show went and bought a Carl Sagan book, I'd be reasonably happy.
2: It's a nice, modest aim for the festival, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, for it's the good best. to have those sort of. You know, that's the, the aim of the festival. Is like for mine, it's just getting people to go and build dens in their homes and stuff like that. So, have
3: you, but, got, a, have you got a similarly homely and lovable aim for your?
2: Everything? Really,
7: I haven't really got any aim other than to just do the show and, and chicks. people laugh. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, students in their pants embarrassed it's my bedroom in the morning <laughs> no,
5: I mean, um, I'm hoping I, that our conversation about burlesque stays in because yeah. if the burlesque <laughs> conversation
7: gets yeah. Cut yeah. out then students, the students in their pants <laughs> in their <laughs> bedroom right. but the, you know the shows it, 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 I, I'm, I'm really enjoying just coming up to Edinburgh and, and doing something I want to do and, and actually not caring so much I And mean, it's my 20th anniversary it's my 16th fringe you know and I think like you I used to get really wound up and I still do a, a very occasionally get a little bit wound up by some stupid thing.
4: The
2: Next week, nominations will be announced for the if. Comedy Awards, formerly known as the Perriers, and we'll see whether the judges have been thinking along the same lines as the reviewers. So our producers, Ben and Fran, have been through the papers.
9: So, Rod Gilbert, um, now he got a one
8: star. Scotsman
2: it? Rod Gilbert, four stars. Four stars. So,
9: uh, I see the stage
7: of giving Brendan Burns.
2: Three weeks in Edinburgh, Brendan Burns. There was no.
7: Whereas uh, our very own Brian Logan seems
2: to sit on the fence. The Scotsman, five stars. huh? Oh. It's Sister
1: Psycho by Daniel Ward. Mark Watson, like Mark I can't
2: cope
3: anymore!
7: Well, I'm none the
3: wiser. The collected wisdom of newspaper comedy critics there.
2: So to cut a path through the newspaper jungle, we asked Kate Copstick of The Scotsman, who she thought
0: might win. For sure, Michael McIntyre should be in the running, but opinions differ so widely on Michael McIntyre and so many people think he's too mainstream, which I think is ridiculous. Another comic who I think people don't think about enough because he is seen as a bad boy is Jim Jefferies. His show is phenomenal. It has been for years. It's hugely funny. But because he has a name for being you know, nasty, you know, he tends that's to be it. discounted. I'm Megan.
8: Me grandmother died four weeks ago. It's going on to five weeks ago, actually. And uh, she was 93, so I'm all right with it. Because um, that's what, you, what else was she meant to do, do a motocross race or something? <laughs> that's what you do, you fucking die. Towards the end, she was just like a head in a chair. And um, <laughs> she, she had dementia, or as I like to call it, honesty. Just old people telling the truth, right? Just fucking, I've walked around this planet for 93 years, I'm sick of lying to cunts, you're not me son!
0: Funny is funny. Now, whether it's black funny and, uh, you know, sex funny or drugs and rock and roll funny, it's still funny and he is an awesomely talented comic. Looking back over a few years, there has been a tendency for the panel to fail to nominate or, you know, give somebody the win one year when that person is hot, hot, hot. Chris Addison, I think three years ago, four years ago, did an unbelievably brilliant show, did not end up on the list. He came back the next year and did a show which was very much the same as the previous years, but not quite as good, and he got on the list. Phil Nichol, two years ago when he did Almost Gay, that was a career-topping show, and he didn't make the list. Last year, he came back with Naked Racist, which was fantastic, but it was not as good as Almost Gay, and he won the prize. Last year, Stephen K. Amos was the show that everybody was talking about, how brilliant it was, that he had turned a corner, it was personal, it was funny, it was the best. He didn't make the list. So I'm thinking that maybe we will see Stephen's name up there, and that would be great, that would be well-deserved.
2: Kate Copstick there, she is a formidable lady, and Brian, do you agree with her opinions?
3: Extremely seldom, Lucy, (laughs) (laughs) and in this instance, really not much at all.
2: Okay, what do you think then?
3: Right, a rather more challenging question. (laughs) Uh, Well, I do think that this is quite an unusual year. It's the only one I can remember where there isn't one or two acts who are definitely going to be on the shortlist. I don't think there's any newcomers like Dimitri Martin or Kitson or Jackson's Way that everyone knows have made a big splash and that are bound to be recognised. People are saying, oh, Russell Howard, Michael McIntyre, all of whom are capable comics, but the the heartbeat is not quickening at the prospect.
2: Do you have any interest in it?
3: I don't really like it,
7: but it's Uh partly because I've never, ever been nominated for it. (laughs) Uh, But also, I think it sort of spoils the fringe of it to have a competition, and it means that a lot of comedians go away feeling they've failed. But then,
2: why don't we, as comedians, all just decide not to play and just say, "Actually, don't"?
7: I think it's because. I mean, it would be great if that happened. And what I really hope is that Stuart Lee wins the Spirit of the Fringe and goes on and goes. But the Spirit of the Fringe would surely not be an award, so mm-hmm. you know, and says we should all go. Let's all leave. If <laughs> like, anyone
2: could lead a revolution, yeah. then it's but, you, you know, but shit. then it
7: would be, then it would be so churlish to do that because then actually, you know the thing is everywhere. It's it, it's sort of one of those things where it's like being uh, rich and poor. You know, poor people put up with rich people because in the back of their mind they think but one day I might be a billionaire, <laughs> so I'm not going to smash this system down because I might So you know, even though most of those people in that room will have no chance of ever getting nominated, they don't want to cause a fuss. And, you know, and I'll be there and I'll be drinking their uh, free cocktails and getting drunk <laughs> and shouting Perrier
5: every time they say if.com.
7: Yeah,
2: think that is, to the students. Uh, What's your
7: pants look like? <laughs> I must know. I must
5: know. <laughs> it must yeah. be hard
7: for them to sit in there. There's so many shows. Well, yeah, how can
5: you judge? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's whether you're a critic, a comedian, or, or a judge. What other time in your existence do you go and watch seven comedy shows in a row? in a day, because no longer do you need to laugh anyway, you've already had the benefit of the laughter by two in the afternoon.
2: Well there are lots of acts up here hoping to be spotted and get onto the shortlist but there are some for whom it seemed the festival was over before it had even begun when their venue, snappily named Just the Tonic at the Caves, was cancelled two weeks before the festival began producer Ben Walker went to meet Stephen Carlin one of the acts who was rehoused to find out the full story
8: Now, uh, if you came to see my show last year when I was at the Café Royal, you may recall that I had the audacity to criticise the quality of the toilets in the Café Royal. Well, this year, I've got a venue that's got no toilets whatsoever. Okay, so that is progress as far as I'm concerned, because if you can't have toilets that are acceptable quality, let's have none. Stephen Carlin, we're standing now outside what was going to be your venue. What happened? Two weeks before the, the Fringe was due to start, I got a phone call from the poster saying, do you know how <laughs> you're meant to be in the caves? Well, they're not going to be ready in time. We're going to have to build a new venue on the site of the old Gilded Balloon that burnt down. Temporary venue using tents and uh, raised artificial platforms and scaffolding. There was a slight moment of uh, uh, panic when I seen the venue at first because it wasn't ready um, even two days before the festivals, But it was a, it was literally a building site. So, was it like performing in a tent? It's good. I mean, the the only th- there's a bit of noise that comes in, but it, it actually helps me to time the show because every night. Exactly half hour into my show, a street sweeper will go past in the street, and so that is a an audio signal for me to know that I've got to be at a certain part of the show at that time. Thank you very much. Let's Thank. go and have a look at the new venue now. Yep. Yeah. So I'm now with Tamsin from the Promoter's Good Sense of Humour. Yes. You guys had quite a hand in turning this into a venue.
4: Yeah, well, the initial renovation was done by Daryl Martin from Just a Tonic. Um, It's the old Gilded Balloon fire site, so it literally is a building site, although rather a striking one with the old architectural features of the arches at the front still there. So Daryl organised the two marquees to basically save all of the shows, which were homeless. And then at the last minute, we thought it needed a little bit of extra titivation. So we came in and we painted up the walls and we added fairy lights. And then we did a little bit of Banksy-style graffiti artwork on the arches. I think it has a certain sort of post-apocalyptic charm, um, but the fairy lights, you know, bring wonder and magic to any venue, I think.
8: They set off the apocalypse very well.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's all come together beautifully. Everybody pulled together at the last minute and we, we've got a perfectly functional, rather charming little venue here and you get a very decent cup of coffee, a very good show. You should come and have a look. Good plug there. Thank you.
8: <laughs> this is the um, Sea Socko Urban Garden. The urban garden bit of it, I don't know what an urban garden is, but I assume that is what an estate agent calls a yard. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's like a garden... Uh, but with no plants and just concrete and bricks. So uh, a yard. And Urban Garden, with development potential, uh, is a yard where you could park a caravan. There have been problems with it being a different venue. Sometimes tickets have been sold and they haven't turned up. Sometimes I've had to direct people, seeing them walking about looking lost and they're looking for me. And there was one member of the box office staff that thought my show was cancelled and actually been turning the public away, which I like, because I like to put a number of obstacles in the audience's way. I don't want to make it too easy for them. It's pretty impressive. They've, uh, you know, two venues, a bar serving oysters and uh, all sorts of things. Exactly, yes. Do you get oysters at some of the permanent venues? No, at all. And and a press office in its own little tent, and the ticket office, which is in a shed that looks like it would be a pitch and putt where they hand out the clubs. Everyone has pulled together it has been a real wartime spirit thing. Not, I mean, that, that achievement of building that venue is not equivalent to uh, the 1930s, 1945 Second World War, but
3: it's maybe a close second. So how would you have coped with that, fellas?
7: I don't know. It would have been very, very disappointing. I'd have been very upset about it. And then you just have to make the best of it, don't you? That's, the, that's the Edinburgh thing. You, have to, you do have to pull through.
2: I mean, But so many of the venues are just constructed for the festival, like the room that yeah. you're in at the Underbelly. Is that a year-round venue? I don't that? know
7: what they do. I don't, I don't think the Underbelly does anything in the rest of the... year.
5: Isn't other. it for storage or something? Yeah. I, I thought it just meant that uh, if it rains, a lot of uh, ancient manuscripts get very wet as they're kept in a skip outside <laughs> until they can be put back in. Because, no. I mean, those
7: venues at the Baby Belly are just amazing. <laughs> they're just, like, <laughs> literally these little caves you go down these winding passages. great. It's, it's just sort of amazing though. Audience. I mean like that's what's great about Edinburgh, you know, to turn like a cellar into a into a venue. It's almost you know, it's so theatrical down there and exciting down there. I it's think. great
5: for us, but not so great for the bedless tramps. Yeah. I mean I remember yeah. doing one venue when I was working as a tech before I became a stand up and as it was big we were stripping it down and realised that this was a place it was normally used as a hostel. Right. I don't know where they went. And then you know, as we walked out and the sun came up, it was the end of the fringe. To queue, people were going, "Can we come back now?"
3: they were staying in your flat. <laughs> <weren't they>? Yeah.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> there's a lot of site-specific theatre in Edinburgh. You don't think there's any chance of site-specific stand-up comedy taking off
7: well good maybe that's what you just end up doing in your flat Malcolm Hardy did a show in his flat didn't he when he was (laughs) and he wasn't allowed to charge people to come in so he charged them to leave (laughs) 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 so he kind of managed to get around the laws
2: as critics do you find that the venue makes a difference to your reviews do you factor it in
5: We should maybe have more venue reviews where, as well as reviewing the show, you then go, it seems quite preposterous to charge someone £12 to come into a room where the comedian's sweating within the first three minutes and it's dripping off him and we're all sweating and feeling woozy.
4: (laughs) It can be a bit of a litmus test, that, though, actually, because there are all of these... Absolutely tiny black box theatres. It can be like going to kind of sit in a series of saunas throughout yes. the day. Mm-hmm. By the time Edinburgh is over, my pores have been well and truly clean Yeah, your yeah. skin is lovely. Uh, <laughs> <if> I might say <laughs> so.
2: And now, at last, it's time for the golf.
3: It's not often you find yourself up at eight o'clock during the Edinburgh Festival. But here I am, 10 miles out of the city centre, about to start the Comedians versus Critics golf match. I'm paired today with the stand-up Miles Jupp, we're at the first tee, and the grudge match is about to commence. Right, who's it? it It's you. Absolutely. It was an extremely good start, I'm very pleased. The first tee is a real possibility for self-immolation and humiliation, but I've pulled it off with a frankly spectacular shot. Miles is about to take his shot, leaning over the ball. A lot of pressure. Miles. Any thoughts on this contest?
9: I'm not a leading contender. Uh, you seem to be hitting it quite straight, quite full. I think probably uh, probably Brian Logan's
3: uh, aiming for a, yet another victory. I think Miles is hustling. Bus ride was a testy affair as comedians and critics sounded one another out cautiously, like wild beasts sniffing each other's bottoms. Had I given anyone an embarrassingly bad review? Had anyone been given an embarrassingly bad review by me? out of bounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pointless game this is. I don't
9: really have time for the sort of over-exuberant celebrations that Mr Logan's throwing in. I
3: feel this is a bit like the hare and the tortoise. I've started out the traps with big ears and gay abandon. but Miles on the other side of the fairway is tortoise-like and so far producing the results. So, In your experience of comedians, is there a strong mutual antagonism, or is there there any mutual respect whatsoever? I think
9: uh, comedians and critics come to Edinburgh to do exactly the same thing, which is to sort of make a name for themselves, and at some point write or deliver something that's memorable in some way that people might sort of notice and talk about. So they're basically playing the same game, but pretending not to, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is exactly, exactly where we're meant to go.
3: Right, here we are on the uh, 18th green. We just finished the golf match and I'm very pleased to report that I've shown Miles Jupp, who's boss. Miles, how do you feel about your crushing defeat? I feel beaten.
9: Uh, I am beaten. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel good about it, to be honest, but um, that's all right. I'll live to
3: fight another day. Do you think in any way today's match has, has proven something about a criticism and its superiority to comedy as an art form?
9: I don't think it's proved anything whatsoever about anything, but uh, maybe. I'm, I'm happy to concede that you're better at golf than me. I mean, you don't you don't do what I do, so you don't you don't know
3: about it. But uh, yeah, you're good at golf. <laughs> Gracious in defeat, as indeed he has been all the way around. It's been a pleasure.
4: So Maxie, do you ever come up against the people that you've given bad reviews to? Well, yeah, that's the exception I think, rather than the rule. More often than not, there are people who will give you sort of strange looks or look away when you walk into a room.
2: You find yourself being glared at across the yeah. bars and pubs. Yeah. What
4: about you, Brian? Are you
2: a deeply unpopular man in Edinburgh?
3: I'm a deeply unpopular <laughs> man in London as well. That's my own psychodrama. You certainly do bang into them quite a lot in Edinburgh. There's no two ways about that. But I think it's a pretty good discipline when you write reviews of people's shows to never write something that you wouldn't be able to say to say their face. Say to them, yeah, mm-hmm. in person. And something. Edinburgh puts that to the test. If you think you're doing that and not, then you'll soon find out about it in Edinburgh. And you just have to hope that... People are happy to take you at face value and have a talk about it, or, or tell you to piss off if they don't want to have a talk about it. But you know, I can handle that if they can.
2: Yeah, I've never actually uh, punched a critic.
3: I've slept with one. <laughs> went out
2: with That's one. a way to punish. Him. <laughs> <laughs> God, what yeah. terrible review she giving! No, it's
7: uh, the Observer comedy critic. How many stars how did me, you give her? How many stars did she give me? Especially they don't give stars in the Observer.
2: So no tension between you and the press, then you? Uh, got, no, no, good, I felt
7: like a sort of Romeo and Juliet betrayal of. Uh,
3: my craft to cross over that <laughs> boundary. I mean, well, you made great comic hair out of the fact that in 2005 was it? The Telegraph yes. critic said you were the worst. Comedy I got the worst, show worst com- all <laughs> year. the worst comedy experience
7: of the year. Yeah, it was actually quite a compliment that they, at the end of the year, if it happened in Edinburgh, I think it would have actually probably destroyed me. Because it was, you know, I was doing my first stand-up show, and you know, and I can't imagine that a comedy critic could see that show and go, that was the worst thing in the world of comedy that's happened in this entire and the fact that the guy remembered six months later and the fact that it was the Daily Telegraph made it, you know, actually an easier pill to swallow out and it's the only thing I've ever really won, so you know, so I didn't want to I didn't want to just sweep under the carpet. I'd won an award. <laughs>
3: Well, before I end up getting clobbered by our two guests today, perhaps it's time to move on. That's the end, in any way, of today's extended heckle, which has been presented by me, Brian Logan.
2: And by me, Lucy Porton.
3: Our guests today were Robin Ince, Richard Herring, Maxi Shalvinska, and the production team is Andy Dixon, Pascal Wise and Nell Bowes.
2: The music's by the Des Moines Riot, and the shows are produced by Ben Walker and Francesca Panetta.
3: Until Monday. Bye. bye Guardian Unlimited.